Koppel, host of the Time for Coffee podcast, where you get firsthand career advice into the jobs and industries that interest you the most. And before we start today's show, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you haven't already, I'd be incredibly grateful if you give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you're like me, you need to do it now because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hey there, Java Junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you want to learn more about what it's like to work in the music industry on the business and legal affairs side of the house, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is the CEO of Merlin, one of the world's largest indie digital music licensing companies. But before I introduce you to Jeremy Sirota, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's newsletter that features unique firsthand career insights and advice into dozens of different industries from the professionals like Jeremy who are actually working in them. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign up box is right there. Now, my music lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Jeremy Sirota, the chief executive officer of Merlin, one of the world's largest independent digital music licensing companies. While most of Jeremy's professional journey has been spent working in the music industry, It actually hasn't been as an artist or as a producer. Rather, Jeremy started out as a summer associate right out of law school, working for one of the world's largest law firms as a technology lawyer. Jeremy has been recognized many times by Billboard on its power list as an international power player and as an indie power player. Jeremy, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you still caffeinated and ready to go? I am highly caffeinated. I'm ready to go. I'm going to have to remind myself to talk slower because oh, I've no. had so much caffeine. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> we, we are going to jam at whatever speed works for you. What kind of coffee do you guys drink in the Sirota family? Oh, wow. So there's, there's a real divide. My wife does the French press with chicory now, which she's come to love because it takes the acidity down. By the way, I'm a huge coffee nerd. I really love this stuff and talking about it. So don't let me go too far down this. Oh my God, Jeremy, you (laughs) cannot go too far. I am I am so into coffee. Everyone was asleep in my household. I was on Instagram on reels and I just it just kept serving up me up coffee reels about baristas and setups. And anyway, I went down that rabbit hole. But I have an espresso maker. I love trying to make the perfect espresso. I love a cortado. That's my drink of choice. It's just the right amount of milk and foam. Yeah. Delicious. Well, I actually, so I grind my own beans Mm -hmm. and then I do the pour over. So I have one of those little ceramic things and I put the, yes. And I order my coffee from a wonderful roastery 
in Stockbridge, Massachusetts hmm. called Number Six Depot. And they okay. they bring in their coffee from all around the world. And so, oh, I just can't wait when the package arrives <laughs> and I, I get to try Indian and Indonesian yeah. and Kenyan and it's so good. So before we get into yep. what you do when you're not drinking coffee, when you're or maybe you are, as the CEO of Merlin, where you have worked since January of 2020, I thought maybe we could get into a little bit of a, a conversation around if we were to talk to some of your high school buddies, kids you went to school with back in the early 90s, and ask them what role, if any, music played in your life back then. What would they tell me, Jeremy? Did yeah. you have a big CD or vinyl collection? Did you ever play an instrument? Oh, wow. Okay. So yes, 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 and yes. I'll give you a couple just because it's fun to delve into music and music technology history, which is I grew up in the era and I know people used to have eight tracks in their car, but you know, we only had a cassette tape player in our car. And at some point, one of my cassettes even jammed in there. So I was left with just one cassette to listen to. It was that or the radio. But what I did have growing up my entire life was, I think I was probably, I must've been 10 when I first had the Sony Walkman. And if you saw me anywhere on my bike, walking around, I had a Sony Walkman on my hip, you know, strapped onto my belt. Cause that's, it was very cool. It was a cool look. It was cool. Yes, it was a cool look at. Thank you. And of course, I got really excited when the Walkman came out, which is what played portable CD, you know, CD players on the go. And then when the, the non-skipping Walkman came out, because when you had a CD, if it moved, it could skip when it was playing. And so when they had this technology came out that you could move around a run, and it would still play seamlessly. So that was always at my hip growing up. And then I did guitar for about two or three years until I broke my left wrist for the second time, which is not great because you need to like, my wrist doesn't really turn <laughs> anymore. But having said that, I was never really great at music. I'm a little tone deaf. You know, anytime I'm singing around my wife or child, they're, they're basically saying, please stop. But I, I have music playing 24-7. If I'm not on a call, right before I came on with you, I had I was listening to an album. I will put music on when I get off this. So that's, that was me my whole childhood. So what kind of music were you listening to? Oh, well, when I first started, I had two older sisters. I just listened to whatever they listened to. So my first tape, and I'm, oh God, I should have written. These are the things you wish you'd written written down. It was either Oingo Boingo or it was The Cure. Regardless of which one it was, everything 80s I was into. So that was The Cure, that was Depeche Mode, that was Duran Duran. I mean, Flock of Seagulls, you name it. I still listen to the 80s music. And then it evolved. I was really into ska. And then I went to punk music. I got into straight edge music for a while. There was this great band called The Gorilla Biscuits that I loved. And then I, I got- even to- heard of straight edge. Yeah, it was this, it was a movement. It was based a lot around music. Might have thought it was probably the first, I think they were the first band. And it was based about no drugs, no drinking. And I did that for, well, basically until I got to college and then college, you do different things. Drinking, not drugs, to be clear. And so that was a big part of it. And, and then when I got to college, I got really into Britpop. 
So that was Oasis and Blur, bands in, in that. Pulp is still, I have a Jarvis Cocker poster over there. Pulp was one of my favorite bands. And then there was always just soul and blues. I've always been a big fan. My mom was really into Nina Simone. So that kind of got me started in that. I could keep going. I love music. I could talk about it all day. <laughs> so, so bottom line, would your high school buddies or your college friends be surprised that you would have gone on to spend the vast majority of your almost 20 years as a professional working in some way, shape or form in the music industry? I would say, oh, wow, that's a good question. Well, the good thing is I can project onto people I don't really know much anymore. I only have a few friends from high school still or that I stay close with. I would say yes. And the reason why is because music was a little bit more invisible, except to the people you did it with. Well, let me think about that. God, now you're asking me a question. I'm trying to give you a real answer. I would say, here's the reason I'd say yes. I was also really into computers. So I was part of the computer club. I was really into like fantasy world, like Dungeons and Dragons growing up. I was part of the Boy Scouts for forever. Like I got my Eagle Scout. That's how I did like the whole 10 years of it, going back to like Cub Scouts. And so I just, there was never this one thing that was like the dominant part of my life. I had all these things that I did. And so I think it would just surprise, I think it would surprise people, but I don't know. Maybe now I need to go ask them. <laughs> now now no, I need you some you know, self-reflection. So, I mean, this is the thing for me, Jeremy. When I was in college, there were various extracurriculars that I was involved in that I did for fun. Yep. One of which was working at my college radio station mm -hmm. where I was the news director. I never saw that as something I would ever do in real life. And I think that's the thing about our interests and the activities that we are naturally drawn to is that they can become a mm -hmm. career. Yep. It wasn't for you as an artist or a producer or working on a label. It came through the legal field. Yeah. As I mentioned at the beginning of our interview, you joined Merlin as its CEO just about exactly three years ago. And I know that you've gone through a rebrand of Merlin. Before we dive into what, do you, what you actually do, how do you want to describe it? What do you want our listeners to know about Merlin and what it does? Yeah. Well, I want to respond to what you said, because I think it's knowing your audience, I think it's a really important one. And then I'm always happy to talk Merlin, of course. I think that if you had to give a thread to this, there is actually a, a thread line between all of this. And that is music, number one, and then technology, number two. And those are the two things that came together that have always been part of my life. And even when I became a lawyer, I didn't become a litigator. I didn't become a corporate lawyer. I was doing technology. So I was working with startups. And I was working with media companies trying to understand how to navigate technological, really, just, we didn't call it that back then, but disruption. And then what I was able to then do when I went to Warner Music is they were looking for technology. And I wanted to stay in technology. And then the idea of being able to merge that with music was so 
just like eye opening. I didn't even realize that there, that was could be a part of where that industry was going. And so that's the through line, and that through line goes through Facebook when I was part of their music team, and now at Merlin, where so much of what we do licensing is about my legal background. We're in the technology space. So many of our partners, Snap, Pinterest, or technology companies. It's operational, which is what I did in my career. So it's some of these sort of disparate elements of your life. It's all about pulling out the ones that you love and not just that you're passionate about, but that you want to be, be in. If you want to get your hands dirty, like if you, if you have figured out itis about that, if that is a part of what gets you animated, then that could be more part of a career because there's a lot of things I'm passionate about that I don't want to do as a career per se. Let uh, me just quickly explain because the figure out itis is something <laughs> that Jeremy mentioned in our Espresso Shots interview and check out show notes to see if that episode has already dropped. That is something that Jeremy's wife has coined mm -hmm. as one of the soft skill sets that you should really try to cultivate. And that is basically being a self-starter, being somebody who is willing to go and figure it out, go online, watch YouTube videos, Google it, read books, whatever it is, try to get the answers yourself, certainly before you go and bother your supervisor. <laughs> so, okay, Jeremy. Yeah. All right. So what, what does Merlin do? Well, if we go back to this theme of my career, which is music as a soundtrack to our lives, that is the world that we live in now more than ever. So if you listen to Spotify, if you have an Apple music account, if you've ever created an Instagram story with music in it, if you've ever created a snap with music in it, if you created an idea pin on Pinterest with music in it, if you listen to Pandora, all of these places are where Merlin comes in to help our members, independent labels, independent distributors from all around the world. We have 500 plus members from 68 different countries. And every continent, we haven't hit Antarctica yet. We're working on it. But Good luck recently, with that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> where there's going to be a scientist down there who's going to start their own label. And I'm going to immediately admit them into Merlin. But we've recently added members from Iraq, Kosovo, Albania. We represent any culture any music, any genre, hundreds of thousands of artists. And what we do is help them get deals with these platforms. So we get them access. We help support them in their efforts to make their music available, to reach new fans. And then more importantly, we make sure that they have best-in-class deals so that they can make more money to stay independent, to put out great music. That's probably... I was surprised to learn as I was getting ready for this interview that there are only three major music labels, mm -hmm. Universal Music Group, Sony Music Entertainment, and Warner Music Group, where you worked. If you're an artist, Jeremy, what are the upsides and the downsides to being represented by one of the big three versus being an independent? Mm -hmm. Well, I'll answer a slightly different way, which is... I believe whether you run an independent label or you work at one of these major record companies where I worked, people love music and they've gotten into this industry because they want to support artists. And I find that true across the industry. What I believe is a little bit different about the independent space is twofold. Number one, independents by their nature are about giving more creative control 
to the artists. And by working with an independent, number one, I believe artists have more creative control. And number two, that independents tend to support genres, tend to support music that wouldn't otherwise get supported in a world in which all three of the majors virtually are now public companies and they have investors and they have to answer to shareholders. And independents you know, typically do not have that issue. They don't have investors looking for an exit. They are just looking to put out great music and run their businesses. And that's two of those are a couple of the differences that I, I think independents bring. And more importantly, it's just consolidation in any industry is not good, it, especially in a creative industry. And so the more that independents can, can maintain and own their independence, so we see less consolidation, that is going to be better for the artists. And that's going to be better for folks like you and me, the consumers who want to hear great and new and interesting music. You mentioned a number of the partnerships that Merlin has forged with digital platforms, YouTube Shorts, Snap, Pandora, Spotify, and also with other tech companies that are in the exercise industry, I guess, for Mm -hmm. lack of a better term. I'm a big Peloton spinner. And one of my favorite things about taking classes on Peloton is that I'm constantly getting exposed to a ton of different artists and genres. So obviously partnerships, forging partnerships with different streaming platforms and digital service providers is a big source of revenue in terms of digital royalties for your members. And one of the, I guess, main services that you would provide your members making those deals. Mm -hmm. What are the responsibilities do you have as CEO beyond revenue generation or at least creating partnerships to help your members make more revenue? Yeah. Maybe just give two examples. Number one, most importantly, is the team. So the Merlin team. So we would not exist but for our members. We are, we're also unique in the music industry. We operate like a not-for-profit. And in fact, we're owned by our members. And we have a board of directors from our members, voted by our members, nominated by our members. So we're, we're very member-driven. <laughs> and we would not exist but for our members and their artists and then for our partnerships. But at the end of the day, any mission-driven company, which is what we are, the mission does not exist if not for the people to execute that mission. And so my number one job is around people. And that's at a, di- a variety of levels, which is obviously hiring, resourcing, supporting them, giving them what they need, helping them to unlock more opportunity, finding growth for them. And now sometimes that goes through the managers. It may not be direct. I try to make as much time for the team as I can. That's number one. And then the second I would provide is sort of the, the vision, the long-term planning. Where are we now? Where do we, where do we want to get to? What do we need to do to get to that point? And so my my role, and it's any leader's role, but particularly is to really pull myself out of the weeds and be able to look down across the company and what's happening and say, okay, what's moving too slow? Where are we don't have what we need? And then be able to go work with people to help try to get that, whether that's with the team, my board. And so that's, those are a couple examples. What do you think would be surprising or maybe just not front of mind? for our young listeners to be aware of 
that you see coming up in the industry mm. in the near future, changes, developments that could very well provide them with potential job opportunities? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Let me put, uh, I'm almost at, now need to put an investor hat on. Where is the industry going? So it started with sampling. It then led into a company like Splice, which was all about easing the means of accessing samples to create music. But if you think about just music creation, AI, and there's a lot of concerns and there should be about what AI could be doing to a lot of industries, but also around music creation. I think the better way to think about AI and music is not about, is AI going to supplant artists? Is AI going to make the music? Rather, how can I use AI to make better music? In the same way, when electronic artists first came on the scene, I remember, I can still remember how electronic artists were not considered artists. And now it is an extraordinarily prominent part of uh, what people listen to. Uh, and no one would question that this is music. And so I think that's a really interesting where AI is headed, but not AI on its own, but AI as a tool to help the creative industries create more output, more interesting output. Yeah. So Jeremy, take us into a typical day for you as Mm. CEO at Merlin. And I'm sure there is no, (laughs) there is no typical day, but if it's a typical week, something like that, that just gives us a flavor of what it's like. Yeah. So a flavor for my week would be a couplefold. Working with my people. So direct reports, people report directly into me. We try to work. This is a whole topic, but we try to work more asynchronously. One very simple example of that is instead of using calls to share information, you share that information in a better fashion before the call. So when you get on the call, you can be more strategic and have more interesting conversations that come from face-to-face or Zoom-to-Zoom. So I have a a number of those. In any given week, I'm talking to members. Any given week, I'm talking, trying to talk to folks from my board of directors. A lot, I'm talking to my chairperson, probably on average once, twice a week at least. Talking to our partners, so folks at the digital music services. Startups, any number of startups are reaching out to me. And then going back to what I was saying before, long-term planning and decision-making. And for me, and this is a really good tip that especially in the, this ubiquitousness of phones, get away from your computer, get out of your apartment or your house or wherever you might live, and just move about. Moving about really makes the brain operate differently. Phone in the pocket. Trust me, I have music playing. But just letting your mind wander around just one particular problem That's something I do, well, maybe not as much in the winter, but I try to do a good amount to think through the problems that we're trying to work through or the opportunities in front of us. Actually, there is a, he is a a brain, but specifically around the eye, so that like ophthalmologically focused researcher who's at Stanford University has a hugely popular podcast. His last name is Huberman. Huberman, okay. Yeah, and he's a PhD. And I watched a talk that he gave about how our vision, we see our eyes as being outside of our brain, but they're actually just an external projection of our brain. And that 
to your point about being outside and walking, if you look off into the distance, that helps you to think more expansively Hmm. and it helps to relax you. Because if you think about it, when you're looking, when you're reading something up close, you're very, that tends to be more of a focus mm-hmm. as opposed to if you're just looking off at the distance while you're walking, it helps both calm you, but also to help you as you're brainstorming or thinking through different problems. Jeremy, I, <laughs> I, like I, wanted, I wanted to ask you what advice you might have four undergrads or recent grads who want to get into the music or entertainment industry. What are some of the less obvious, but maybe super interesting places that they could be looking for entry-level jobs right now? Mm, Yeah. One would be touring. Touring is coming back. There's challenges still. But there's a lot of the... You can't understate the value of in-person as we have all discovered now over the last couple of years and working at a venue. I can't tell you how many people even to this day have started off working at some, and it doesn't have to be a giant stadium. It could be a small, my friend got his start at blue note and I've still know plenty of people have gotten their start there. So that's a really great place. It's also one of those places that can be more adaptable if you need to work a second job because a lot of those can be at night or on the weekends. So that can be very conducive. I would definitely, Keep an eye open around any music tech startup. They, they are looking for people who are hungry because to work at a startup typically entails just long hours. And I can't understate, I know people and there's a lot of value to a work-life balance and to having a better mental awareness of yourself and the impact of overwork, especially. But when you're earlier in your career, your ability to put more hours in is more. And you need to learn to sort of take advantage of that. So one of the pieces of advice I always give to folks is I had a woman who came to me who was, no joke, working in the oil and gas business and wanted to get into music. And when she showed up to talk to me for advice, she had already started a music blog and was working with a couple friends, not herself because she didn't know anyone, but to like find a band to help manage. And she... Going back to some of the other things we've talked about, about being proactive and just not waiting for someone to find the path for her, but just trying different things to see what could work. And so there's a lot of different ways to do it, but music tech startups, music tech startups, venues are really two great places to keep an eye open. So, so don't say, I just graduated from college. I want to go work at Spotify. That can be very challenging. Possible, don't get me wrong, but challenging. But some of these smaller companies, especially, they, they recognize people who are hungry and are really excited about getting involved and solving big problems. How can our listeners find those hmm. tech startups? Yeah, I have two. It's not complicated. It gets more complicated outside of the US, Canada, Western Europe. But even there, it's pretty, it's developing more. LinkedIn, LinkedIn should be your friend. It is absolutely an incredible resource that is overlooked all the time. You'd be shocked how much companies say about themselves on there. You'd be shocked how much you can find, not just where people work now, but where they used to work. And it's so a great way... what would way. the search terms be that somebody could put in to find those companies? Yeah. So that then dovetails with another one, which is Crunchbase. Crunchbase is a great resource. 
They have a whole section called Music Tech Startups, where they try to list out every music tech startup. Uh, you can then tie that into some of the newsletters in the music industry, many of which are free. So Hypebot is free. Music Business Worldwide is free. Billboard has some free elements to it. So there's all these different music newsletters you can sign up to as well. Uh, if you literally just Google top 20 music newsletters, you can find a bunch that are going to be really helpful for you. Fantastic. Thank you so much. We'll try to include some of those resources in our show notes. Prior to joining Merlin, you spent two years at Facebook mm -hmm. when it was still known as Facebook. <laughs> and you were the lead of its independent label. I had no idea that Facebook was in the music streaming business. Well, they are in the art. <laughs> so let me tell you how Facebook is in the music industry. They have at least when I was there, two elements of it. So I spent two years there. I started on the music team at Facebook before they had launched anything in music. So the two sort of main elements are they have a lot of videos uploaded to the platform, both on Facebook and Instagram, where music is included. And they want to keep that music within those. They want to encourage people to have music. Music makes every video better. It is just there's something about music that just amplifies the effect of any video out there. Think of any TV show you watch on Netflix or Apple or you name the platform and music has probably made that show better and may even even made that show because of the music. So that was number one. And then number two is they wanted to create these unique music experiences. One example of that is stories. So when you can pin something to a story, an Instagram story, you can now pin a song into that story. So you can literally use a tool within Instagram to add that music into your story. And they have all different sorts of ways that they're trying to embed music in that way into their portfolio. So whether that's Facebook, Instagram, they also own Oculus, which is the VR headsets, Messenger, which they've spun out as a separate division. So they have a lot of different platforms at Facebook or Meta now that they're trying to use, uh, find and incorporate music into. Prior to working at Facebook, you spent almost nine years at one of the big three music labels. Your last role was as senior vice president and head of business and legal affairs for Warner, Electra Atlantic, and mm -hmm. its Alternative Distribution Alliance. What would you say, Jeremy, were some of the biggest lessons that you learned while you were working at the Warner Music Group? Mm. Yep. One, two lessons I'll give. One was about how to communicate. And it was summed up in four parts. Let me make sure I got all four right. The right information at the right time to the right people in the right format. All four of those in every way you communicate. In email, in Google Docs, in Slack, in person. You have to get all four of those right all the time. But it's not a checklist. It's just a way of thinking. It's, I said I wasn't going to use this word again. I use this in espresso shots a lot, but this is a new one. It's about mindset. Going into it the right mindset around thinking about that because the way we communicate is essential to success. And so that was something I was told in my first year that has taken me a career to fully understand and appreciate. So that was, number, that was a big one when I was there. The other one is that, and as we've evolved in the way we work, 
but was just the concept of walking the halls. And walking the halls literally meant when you were in an office, you would just wander around the hallway and just bump into people and have conversations. And this is the opposite of what I just said. This is the meandering around the field. You don't have a specific agenda. You're not showing up with topics. You're just showing up to talk and converse and relate to that person. And invariably, I will say those conversations usually lead to the biggest opportunities. And so finding these opportunities, whether it's remotely or however we might work, whether it's your colleagues or other in other facets of networking and having those sorts of conversations. This is what you said in the espresso shots, the best career advice about the importance of networking without looking to get something out of it, just to really enrich yourself and how that leads to serendipity, which I happen to call magic. It's the magic magic. of of life, the things that you cannot predict, but that so often happen to us that end up either changing the direction of our professional lives or our personal lives. I'm going to fast forward through here because your first job out of law school was working for a huge multinational, very highly regarded law firm as a summer associate where you worked in the tech vertical, the name of the company, Morrison and Forster. You spent more than four years there, and then you went to work for Warner Music. Let us flash back very quickly to when you were an undergrad. You went to Berkeley, the University of California, Berkeley, in the mid-90s, and you majored in political science. You said you had a concentration in international affairs. And your senior thesis was not about music. (laughs) It was about the World Bank's developmental paradigm that you cleverly entitled Chutes and Ladders. Did you have any idea what you wanted to do with your poli-sci degree when you graduated, Jeremy? I'm going to answer that. I just want to say you may be the first person who's brought up my senior thesis in probably 25 years. So thank you for that. It's a, it's a nice reminder. I'm, I'm not going to torment you and send you a copy of it. <laughs> I don't even know if I I'd still have a I'd probably read it. I'd probably <laughs> find it interesting. <laughs> well, I'm going to answer that. I want to step back because I think this might be helpful for the audience, which is I actually didn't start off as a poli-sci major. I started off as pre-med at first because I really had no idea what I wanted to do. Then I also didn't go to poli-sci next. I went to philosophy next. And then I got kind of bored because it didn't feel very practical. So I went to rhetoric, which is a more practical, simplified, practical version of philosophy. And then I left rhetoric because I realized you had to take a language to get a rhetoric degree. And I'm atrocious at language. I just it doesn't process in my brain if we want to talk about things I don't do well. And so that's where I landed on political science. And then answer your question of, did I know what I wanted to do? No, but I did know that I wanted to not do whatever I was going to do in life for at least a year or two. And so that's where I took two years off between undergrad and law school to do something totally different than what I'm doing now. So what was your first job after you graduated and how did you get it? Yeah. 
So my first job was at a company, which I don't believe exists anymore, called Juno Online, which was, which these don't exist really anymore, an ISP, so something like an AOL Online. And I was a Flash designer. Now, Flash, I believe, has also no longer exists, which was a sort of design language. In a nutshell, allowed you to almost create like animated GIFs. You could do more with it than that, but that's what we were doing there. So two things I didn't know how to do. And this, this is another thing I want to talk about, the difference between hustling and flexing. When I showed up, I was supposed to be an expert in Flash and an expert designer. Two things I didn't know how to do, Flash and design. <laughs> I had a creative background. My mom's an artist, long history of art. I took a lot of art growing up. But what I've always been a big fan of, and this does create stress, this does put pressure on yourself, stretching yourself, flexing. I was like, I'm going to flex into a direction I don't know if I'm capable of to see what's going to happen when I put myself there. And so when I showed up on day one, I'll talk about how I got the job. I had a flash book on one leg and I had a design book on the other leg. So I've never opened Adobe Photoshop in my life. I didn't know how to program in, in Flash. Interesting first week. And the way I got that job is I spent a lot of time researching what it meant to do that. And I talked to a number of people about what success looked like. I was always really interested in a creative career. That's what I was kind of thinking, though I don't think I ever really wanted that. It just took me time to realize that. And so this was my exploration of potentially where I wanted to go. But it really was just... I put the time into it. And so I showed up at the interview. And luckily, they didn't do like tests. Imagine if I had to like deliver something to them. If you're a hiring manager, ask people to deliver work product <laughs> of what you would expect them to do in their job. Because I am the quintessential example of what happens when you don't. And by the way, I evolved very well to the job. But put the time into it. That's what I did to get it. And I'm noting the fact that you said you had books on either leg. This was pre-internet, pre-web. <laughs> so you actually had to buy books yes. that you had to read, that you held in your hands and, uh, and read and taught yourself. So listen, kudos to you. Jeremy, I have three or actually two final T for C questions. And these are questions right. I ask all of my guests. The first one is if you could share a time in your professional life when you struggled, ideally when you failed. And the reason that I ask that is that I think it's, it's very easy for someone who's in school right now to look at you and see your career in hindsight and say, my God, Jeremy Sirota, Everything he touched turned to gold. He even taught himself how to use, how to create flash videos and all this stuff. He never face planted. And the key here is we've all struggled. We have all, I certainly have had many fails in my professional journey. And I think one of the keys to my success has been my resilience, my ability to bounce back and move in directions that challenged me and face down my fear because we all have fears. So the key is what was it, how you persevered, and if there was a lesson that you learned in the process. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's from law school. It's not professional, but it's a really good example. The first thing I'll say is 
you never stop growing. And what changes is the experience you can draw upon to help you through challenging situations. You know, there's, if you're not growing, then you're not, you're doing something, you're not doing something right because that's just life. And that's, that's what excites me. But anyway, the example again. Okay. So for rewind, I went to law school in San Francisco. And at this point, this is my third year of law school. I'd already gotten an offer from Morrison and Forrester to come work there. I'd been a summer associate and they made me an offer. Uh, I was uh, to move to New York, have a job, the technology team, the dream job I wanted at that company. And I took a course called Film and the Law. And there were two reasons I took that course. One was you only had one assignment, a written essay that you turned in at the end of the semester. So number one in my head was like, I don't have to do any work all semester long. And number two, I was like, oh, it's Film and the Law. Yeah, this is a joke. And I treated it that way. And I must have missed, it was, I think it was every other week there was a course. Maybe it was every three weeks. There was a class for like, but for like a long one, like two, two, three hours. Missed 75%. Just didn't even show up. Even though you're only judged on the essay, I didn't turn in any of the interim sort of steps along the path to that essay. A week before you're we supposed to turn it in, I changed, you're supposed to do a, a, a deep dive into a film and the implications for the legal profession. A week before I was supposed to turn the essay, I changed the film I was going to do by email, no less to the professor. And so we get to the end of the semester and I turn in a pretty terrible essay, you know, very surface level. And she was going to fail me. Now, if you get an F in law school, you cannot move on. You do not get your degree. Like uh, This was a real problem if she failed me, which she had all the right to do for everything I'd done. In her class, she could have, she had, and she should have, and she didn't. And the reason she didn't was a couple fold. Number one is I came to her in a respectful way. Everything I did all semester was disrespectful. And Professor Terry, that was her name, wonderful woman. And I changed that immediately, even though it was in my interest, but I treat her with respect. Second of all, I came to her and I asked for forgiveness. I said, I made, I made a mistake. This was wrong. Would you forgive me? And third, I asked her, and this is always a great, as a leader, but just anywhere in life, you ask, what would you do? You know, and like, basically I put it on her. It's like, what could I do? How do I make good on, on this? Tell me how I can make good. And she allowed me, she taught, not at our law school, but at a different law school in San Francisco the next semester. And she allowed me to come to that, but she didn't need to. I showed up every time. I put in way more work into the essay than was required. Ended up getting an A. I went from an F to an A on it. I think it was my only A in my third year of law school, no less, because I really, I'd had the job. I kind of started, a lot of people in law school start to check out the third year if you have a job lined up. And it, just taught me just so many things about respect, about, you know, decisions you make, the ramifications about, you know, you're going to make mistakes and you, you have to own up to them. You also have to move on from them. You can't let those hold you back. I think a lot of people tend to dwell on those mistakes and we all do it, right? Don't get me wrong. Like I make mistakes and it, it still cuts at me. 
I'll still wake up occasionally in the middle of the night. You're like, oh, why did I do that? Uh, so that doesn't change in life. But your ability to forgive yourself does. And if there was two lessons, it's treat others. I mean, it's like the golden rule. Now I'm like to tell you the golden rule, but treat others with respect and learn also to forgive yourself. And it was a very humbling lesson. Thank you so much for sharing that, Jeremy. What a great example. Final question. Yes, final question. Final Jeopardy. Here we go. What do we got? (laughs) If you could go back to university, go back to Berkeley and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? Okay. Well, we just did don't be so hard on yourself. Okay. So that's, that's a big one, but there's a balancing act to this one, but I'll just start with the sort of high level and then try to figure out how to like break this down, which is participate in everything, take advantage of everything. And I'm going to use an example uh, from Warner Music, uh, from my first manager at Warner, who taught me so many incredible lessons. And hopefully this will then help to make sense for people starting their careers or early in their careers. He asked me to participate in this working group around artist agreements and what should or shouldn't be in an artist agreement and how it should be updated as you know, this digital evolution was impacting how record companies and labels interface with their artists. And I was like second year in at Warner. I didn't know anything about artist agreements. It's not what my career was at that point or what I dealt with on a day-to-day basis. I didn't see any relevance to my career. And what he said is, you're going to go in there and you're going to learn something. You're going you're gonna to work with people who know more than why would you not want to be involved in that? And the reason why I say that's a balancing act is number one, you can't do everything. So you do at some point have to pick and choose and be thoughtful about what that means to quote participate in everything. But it also means that something that may not be, this is like the networking, it may not be, the, this is where the magic comes, may not be directly relevant to your through line. Because you look at, what I've done, it looks like there's this through line. And there is, and some of that storytelling, but there is also a through line. But it's curvy. The path is curvy. And sometimes these taking these curves and you know, meandering around can be really helpful to getting to where you may not even realize you want to go because you don't maybe always know what's possible. And so that that's participate in everything with the caveat. <laughs> Awesome. Awesome. If you want to learn how to break into the music industry, check out show notes to see if Jeremy's Espresso Shots interview has already dropped. Jeremy, I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the T4C community. You have so much wisdom and obviously so much incredible experience. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the conversation. Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T4C. And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the Time for Coffee website under the coaching tab at 
time, the number 4, coffee.org, or text me at 202-236-5712. That's 202-236-5712. 